we are responsible for our waste. How do we value this? It's really hard in a linear economy to start valuing things going back around. If it's achievable, then I think it's more likely to happen. Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sorman-Nilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father and your host for The Second Renaissance. Today I'm excited to be bringing you Lisa McLean, the CEO of New South Wales Circular. Lisa is a circular economy and zero carbon business transformation leader. She's been successfully advising industry and governments in developing new policy frameworks and regulations that bring about market change to enable the circular zero carbon economy over the past 14 years. Lisa established and led the Open Cities Alliance, a peak industry association with unique membership from government to private sector and research organisations. Open Cities advocates for the circular economy, prosumer rights, and new local utility and mobility precinct approaches. Her sustainability thinking regularly features in the ABC, in the Australian Financial Review, and in the Sydney Morning Herald. Lisa helps us define the circular economy and its innovation capacity in this conversation and highlights why circularity's time has come in a massive way, the ticking climate clock and what we can do individually and systemically to shift from a linear economy to a circular one. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to the Second Renaissance, Lisa. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely honoured to be here talking circular with you. I feel like it's very much, and tell me if my feeling is wrong, but I feel like it's in the zeitgeist at the moment that everyone's talking about the shift from the linear economy, easy to say if you're Swedish, from the linear economy to the circular economy at the moment. Um, your, ti- your time has come, it seems. Yeah, look, it's it's good and it's about time. And I think there's a real reason why that's happened. COVID has certainly accentuated this because it's changed our supply chains. It's meant that all the things that we used to be able to take and get, not all of them were available and we had to think about new ways of doing things. But um, the circular economy is actually the only economic framework we have for us to grow our economy, grow jobs and investment into the future in a resource-constrained future and a carbon-constrained future. So it's really kind of the only option in the bag at the moment. Um, and the World um, Economic Forum helped to set up the World Circular Economy Forum with Citra, which is a Finland investment fund, to raise awareness about circular economy because we need to start thinking about other ways in which we can get all the things we need while at the same time not depleting our regenerative systems and not contaminating and polluting our planet. So, I mean, you know, circular sounds wonderful and, and, and people talk about the linear model of being take, make, waste. Um, it's fairly easy to understand. But, you know, before we move into what, what the future of circular economy is, is, is kind of headed, just give us some definitions or some really good, you know, examples of, you know, what the world used to look like and what's not okay and, and just how, you know, a product or a service could go circular instead, for example. Yeah, look, it's a really good point. I think the concepts of circular economy need to be explained. Ultimately, it's it's decoupling economic growth from virgin resource use. So that means how do we keep making things we need without taking away from the environment at rates that are unsustainable. So we're going to have 10 billion people on the planet by 2050 and we actually do not have enough resources to continue to consume the way we are. So it's pretty serious stuff, Anders, and it's time that we had this big discussion about it. And people will have heard about going beyond our planetary boundaries, you know, living for two or three planets. That's precisely the rate in which we're consuming at the moment. And the real problem is not... Um, our needs because we can get our needs met. It's what we're doing with all this stuff that we're making and the true costs of making it aren't um, borne out in the price tag. So, for example, you know, 
single-use plastics, for example, you know, these things are don't have a future life. They go into landfill along with a lot of other things. I mean, there's so many components that currently go to landfill. And some of these things can be extracted out of landfill and have got really big value on them. So we think about solar panels. Solar panels have got silver and silicon in them. You know, other electronic waste have got precious metals in them. And again, a lot of this is either incinerated or going to landfill. So it's kind of a no-brainer that we have to change our supply chains and change the way we manage waste to be extracting that value. And there's lots of ways we can do that. We can reduce the waste in the beginning when we're designing packaging. And that's why you hear about the R's, you know, reduce, reuse, uh, redesign. Um, but we can also um, recycle things. We can share things. Um, the other thing that we can do is refuse things. We can start saying, actually, no, I don't need to buy that because I can get shared mobility, to your point about it as a service options. I can get a car as shared mobility instead of buying one. Um, or I might be able to get fashion as a service. There's a good one that's coming, and I think that's very appealing to people. People's ears tend to pick up around that because that means, you know, we can get a subscription to our winter or seasonal fashion uh, and we get really good quality um, garments that then when we're finished with them, they go back to be repaired and then they're um, creating jobs in the process and out they go again to new customers. So lots of ways in which we can rethink this, cir this circular economy and what it means. So it's right across our economy. I'll just finish by saying that it's not just about waste management. So we will have heard about circular economy in terms of recycling stuff, but circular economy is way deeper. And that's why we're starting to think about recycled water in utilities. We're starting to think about transport that's sharing and reuse business models. So it is right across the economy. It's what we call a systems transition and it requires a lot of change and it requires all of us getting involved. Yeah, and I, I mean, I just, just, and I think some great examples there. What I'm also thinking there is just to smarten it down, even to sort of a, you know a personal, you know, financial management of of our household, right? And if I think about your example of, you know, we're living as if we actually had two or three planets, and you know, the, the you know the smartened down version of that is in your household. Imagine if you're, you know, spending two or three times what you were making, right? A year on credit cards. At some stage, that you know, the 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 tax man or or exactly. the credit card the company is going to yeah, the debt comes back. And I guess this is the you know comes back to the definition of sustainability, right? Which is meeting today's consumers and today's humans' demands and desires without jeopardizing those of of future generations, right? Yep. That look, it's absolutely right. And I just think that. No one likes throwing food scraps in the bin with bathroom and hair and clothes and it's actually disgusting and no one really wants those outcomes. We want to be able to say, actually, you know what, these garments, some of, some of them are at their end of their use but they're to, to be worn but they could be used for other things, for rags or cleaning or whatever. Some clothes could go to be reused and I've got these other items that could be actually have that value extracted from it. So I think people are crying out for those types of services at home. And, you know, we know that with food waste, for example, we can get a compost and, and a worm farm. And, and that's something that, you know, it's, that's, it can be a generational thing. So I think there's some barriers for younger generations who mightn't have that connection with country or the environment to learn how to use them, or they might be in apartments and there's less space. But technology in the market starting to provide us with different solutions, bins that we can use in the home that break it down, um, that we can use smaller scale for plants, for example, and you can scale it up if you've got a bigger garden, bigger waste streams there. So there's certainly um, things we can do for organic waste that perhaps are a good a good way to start to see circular economy and how it can be expanded through into other parts of our lives. But, you know, we've got a big role to play. We're all consumers, so we can use our purchasing power to rethink about things. Do we actually need to own it? As I was saying before, could it be a service that we could take those items from? Could we borrow something, go to a tools library, for example, or even go to our neighbour and borrow a drill instead of buying a new one? So thinking about you know, these types of options. And then, you know, we also have a role to play in our own jobs because where we're working, we're thinking about how we procure things and buy things in the office, how we get to the office. Can we use more public transport? 
do we need as much paper in the office? Can we just be paperless and save um, save on waste that way? Uh, what about food? In our, if we're organising an event in our office for our team, can we make sure that we order less to start with because there's always a lot left over? And you know what? We could all do with eating a little bit less anyway. It wouldn't matter if we went home a bit hungry. And, you know, are we utilising um, services like Oz Harvest and other services that potentially can take, you know, local services that can take that food and give it to someone who really needs it at the end of it? So once you start to go on this circular journey, Anders, as you would be, you know, have experienced yourself, you know, there's so many endless opportunities for us to all contribute and do better. Yeah, and I, and I think about, the you know, the small and the big changes we, we can make, right? This is... Um, you know, at home we've got we've got three worm farms. Uh, we've got a sub pod that I'm sure you've come across, uh, which is a, s- a subterranean compost that sits squarely in the middle of our vegetable garden, which I've had huge uh, amounts of fun building with my four-year-old son. Uh, and this sub pod is phenomenal. So um, unlike the worm farms that we also have, which are above ground, it actually regulates the temperature so that the worms are happier. And of course, they, they, they feed on our scraps. And over the course of six months, uh, or over the course of a year, I should say, this sub pod, just by taking all of our uh, food waste, uh, which we try and keep to a minimum, uh, that offsets the equivalent of six months worth of motor vehicle uh, carbon emissions, which is pretty amazing when you just think about the fact that you're essentially just burying your, um, you know, your food uh, into you know a little hole in 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 the garden, right? And letting the worms oh. do the do, do the sequestering of carbon, etc. Absolutely, and look, our our organic food waste represents three percent of our national carbon emissions. So it's, it can be up to forty percent of the red bin waste. So big opportunity there. And look, the other really key thing, which I haven't talked about yet, I'm too eager to get to it, Anders, but you're talking about carbon reduction. So circular economy has a critical role that's kind of been a bit secret, really, in reducing carbon because to get to 100% of our carbon reductions for the Paris targets, we've got to look at renewable energy and energy efficiency, and that's probably only going to get us to about 55% of the carbon emissions we need to make. The remaining 45% will come from it's embedded in products, in agriculture, in food systems, the way we use and the way we dispose of foods and food and products. So a circular economy has a critical role to play there to reducing those other sort of embedded emissions, hidden emissions. That's for almost half the emissions we need to cut. So I think that's quite an empowering story because uh, it's not just... Uh, reducing carbon when we're taking a circular economy approach. It's it's one of these few economic frameworks that does a lot more than that. It's helping to restore biodiversity. It's helping to create regenerative systems and alternatives. So if you're using, you're making all this compost, guess what? You don't need to buy chemical fertilisers. And I think that's a very important um, opportunity. There's a cost saving there, obviously, as well. But then, you know, we have too much uh, chemicals in our um, environment at the moment. We do still need fertilisers, obviously. They're important. But at the moment, getting that balance right has been a struggle. Um, And if we can actually replace um, chemical fertilisers with natural fertilisers, we've got a really big opportunity of rejuvenating our land. And, you know, the depletion of our lands at scale is also another uh, bespoke problem for Australia, a really mm. big one. This is, so this is carbon what... emissions can be reduced by our consumption. Yeah, this is why I've taught my four-year-old son to always wee in the garden. So just something from my Swedish childhood that, that lives on cross-generationally here, here, here in Australia as well. Um, so... You've talked a little bit about you know the circular economy, what we can what we can do in the home, the fact that even you know our food waste is, is a big emitter of of of, of um, carbon or, or methane, is it or, or or carbon once it goes into landfill? Just well, checking methane the chemistry has, here. yeah, it's got a much higher ratio. Um, it's almost three point something more potent than carbon, so that's yeah. sort of what happens to it. Yeah. yeah. So I read a, a fascinating example just recently about uh, Sam Elsom from uh, I think it's called a sea forest here in Australia that are feeding a particular type of seaweed now to to cattle, so that essentially they uh, fart less. So apologies for lowering the intellectual rigor of the conversation here, um, but they can feed it to even even sheep. So now MJ Bale, which is an Australian fashion brand. 
are using uh, this seaweed to feed their uh, farmers' sheep, which has reduced uh, the methane uh, emissions by something like 87%. So it's actually you know driving a new type of product that's way more environmentally friendly. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're able to even pass on some of those costs because I feel like now you know sustainability and, and premium or, or even luxury brands really go hand in hand what what's your sense of what the what i term the conscious consumer now wants look i think um i think you're absolutely right i think that what what people are always looking for is quality and but often the price um point has you know prevented people from getting that and so that's where if we look at fashion which is a massive issue for waste so textile waste is an issue because often complex fibres woven together, really hard to get the cotton out of what's majority plastic or synthetics in there. Um, So textiles is a big problem. And in the past, people would be perhaps looking for quality garments. And we've seen, you know, your H&Ms and other brands come in, Zara's and other brands, which had really great style, could do it more affordably. And people felt that they could actually get access to that quality. Um, paying less but the problem is the the longevity of these garments and we're seeing fashion as a service for example in in China and in Europe you know it's a it's a really multi-million dollar business growing really fast um, because you know you can invest in a really good quality garment that's suddenly also affordable to you because you're taking it as a service Sure, the longer you want to use that for, the probably the more it's going to cost you, but you've got the option of using it when you need it and getting it when you, you know, and, and giving it back into the economy for when you don't. So I think that um, circular economy isn't saying that we need to settle for uh, less. And I certainly don't think it's saying, oh, we've got to wear secondhand clothes from now on. That, that's absolutely not the case. And look, the businesses, circular economy businesses are often highly profitable because they've got multiple revenue streams. They're often, instead of paying to um, get rid of a waste, they can get paid to keep that waste and turn it into something else or design it out from the beginning. So if we think about washing machines and dryers and uh, I've got a dishwasher downstairs that cost me a lot of money, it's not very old, It's the engine's blown up, someone comes out, there's a service fee for about $180 um, and guess what? It's going to cost over $1,000 to fix that machine. Now, but I'm told that if I buy another one on the spot or in the next couple of weeks, I will get my service fee paid back to me and I'll get a new machine. And it's just not satisfying for people. And we also know that the the cost and the value inside that machine is significant to the manufacturer. So Philips, for example... Um, and this is a global program that's just going to start in Australia hopefully soon, where you can actually get your white goods as a service so that at the end of the day that service person will come and take that back and say tomorrow we will bring you a new one and it will cost you the same because you're on a service fee arrangement. And guess what? The company that's, if it's Philips in this case or whoever, then gets that really valuable kit back home because pretty much all of it's new. And if you Google these parts or looking up to pay, you know, to, to fix those parts, and I did in this case, you know, the, the components were about $150. So it's the expertise to fit it out that costs money and other things and the price points, you know, the market's not there for it. But you can see how the company can actually make big savings by doing that in-house and by then keeping that those products back in the market. So I think there's a piece here around um, actually the circular economy will better tend to people's expectations and needs. And we know that this is part of the, the, the past. I mean, it's not back to the future, but we do know that the value of um, on products and materials was much higher in past generations and we had a more we had a skill set in a workforce that was capable of being agile and, and repairing and fixing those sorts of things. So mm. there's big opportunities for new jobs, for new industries to build around this as we actually start to reduce waste and improve quality for people. I find it really heartening and it's really satisfying that you know, the right to repair movement is really gaining some speed, but also when you have a great experience of something being repaired. Um, I mean, 
I'm not the most practical uh, handyman ever, but my four-year-old son somehow thinks that I can fix anything. And he, you know, if he's in doubt, he just goes, just use some sticky tape. He's got some, uh, some challenges saying sticky tape, but, um, you know, so I'm not the best person to repair stuff, but I, I do manage to do it. And I, I insist that things that we've paid, you know, good money for should be able to be repaired either by us or, or you know, a skilled professional. And so we had an experience recently with, um, to your point about white goods or things that go in, in your home, where the, uh, the new house that we moved into uh, came with a fridge. And uh, this particular brand, which was Samsung, had had some issues with a with a freezer compartment. So we sort of ignored it for a while. Uh, we were like, we'll live without crushed ice coming out of a little container for a little while. Uh, but it started leaking, and there were some issues. But Samsung was super helpful. You know, they sent out um, someone to help repair, diagnose very very quickly within forty eight hours. Um, even despite some lockdown challenges and all the rest. And uh, managed to replace parts, repair it, and it's in—it's as good as new now. Um, and I was really impressed with the service up until the point where they said, "What do you want to do with the old parts?" Because you know I've been spoiled with the likes of you know Apple, for example, where I get to take back my old iPhone and exchange it essentially for for a new, and know that um, the cobalt, the lithium, and and, and the gold, etc in my iPhone will be uh, recycled, upcycled, etc. Um, and, uh, you know, Samsung went, you know, we, we can take these away from your house. And I was like, oh, that'd be nice. And I'm assuming you'll, you know, disassemble these things and then turn them into, you know, a new, uh, new part. And they said, no, they will go into landfill. This is, Look, this, is, this, is, this is all my Twitter feed. So it's all public information. What do you yeah. think? What do you think? What do you make of that? Look, I think it's tough and I think businesses, there's a lot of change happening. We're at the forefront of quite a lot of change and it's just not going to be acceptable moving forward to do that and eventually um, we'll look back and think, can you believe that we just threw it in the bin? Um, and I think there's a big piece here around product stewardship, Anders, which is, you know, we're seeing those regulations coming in with China Sword. It was a, a fantastic thing to happen in my opinion that we are responsible for our waste um, and so government, the federal government's been moving really quickly to invest in product stewardship schemes. And what that means is that if you make it, you're responsible for it. And, you know, it's your value too. It's your dollars invested in those broken pieces or those parts that still have some value in them. And so setting up um, systems where, you know, companies can actually take back their own waste is what we're going to be seeing more of and I think what people expect um, and if it's not that same company, new industries will start to emerge to get that and they might form partnerships with your Samsungs and Samsungs and others to get that, um, extract that value back. But this is precisely the, the grit of sort of where we work at New South Wales Circular around um, supply chains. And there's three areas we work in. One is around um, building credibility around the economics of Circular um, economy. And so we have appointed Australia's first chief circular economist. And she has been very busy. Dr. Kame Tang has been very busy spotlighting these opportunities, you know, where if we had all of that electronic waste and could extract value from it, what's it's worth? You know, what is that worth? Where's it going at the moment? We're looking at solar panels. We're looking at construction materials and other things. So that's a really important part for us to start to understand how do we value this. It's really hard in a linear economy to start valuing things going back around. And so lots of work has to be done around that and that's something that we're really committed to, um, you know, so that our regulators understand and reward sharing and reuse rather than sort of flush away and throw away our business models, which quite frankly have been here for 75 to 100 years, let's face it. This has been the business as usual for a long time. Yeah. So the economics is one thing. The second area we're working in is around supply chain. So how would we help these companies, the example you've given, to actually create a new supply chain for their waste stream? And recently uh, we did a fantastic project with St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney where a very passionate nurse, um, Rodrigo, was really sick of all the plastic waste um, and he simply created new systems internally um, with that hospital to capture the needle caps and ampules and clean stream them into certain bins. 
and ensure that it was safe and ensure that, um, you know, they were collecting as much as they could. So he did that and then we partnered with St Vincent's to introduce to them a manufacturer in Orange who was using virgin oil to make his components for his uh, different market and he came to the city, he picked up the um, the plastic, the PP and PE plastic and he used it to make components for wind farms and he used it to make roller door wheels for the built environment. So, and suddenly he's able to grow his business and look at potentially putting on, you know, 10 FTE positions, new positions in his business. So supply chain is super important and mm. people need help with it, Anders, to your point. They, they're not going to be able to do it necessarily on their, their own but what we do want to start seeing is that people accept the reality that this is waste that this is costing their business and once once we all can do that and if we're either working in a business having the foresight to question that if we're running a business don't be afraid to look at those streams and at the moment yes yes you're paying for that to be out of sight out of mind but wouldn't it be wonderful if those old um, pallets that you used for vegetables or whatever else at scale um, could go to a pallet bank? Because, you know, maybe the market needs a thousand of them and you've only got 10. So you go into a you go into a bank together and locally you work together to do that. So we're seeing a lot of those types of businesses emerging to fix that sort of supply chain issue. So in, in that regard, I'm always, I, I find, Myself, sometimes meeting a bit of resistance as, you know, as a futurist, we're kind of like science fiction authors, um, in a sense, or science fiction authors for business. And so we're always selling, this is what the world might look like, dystopian, utopian, 2025 or 2030, 2050. And we try and weave a, you know, a new strategy and a new, new narrative to get people's hearts and minds along on that journey, co-designed with our, with our clients. And sometimes I come up against this resistance, which is that, People go, oh, you know, it's fine if Woolworths or Coles want to use their buyer power to say, hey, if you want to come along on the journey, if you want your goods in on our shelves, then X, Y, Z are the expectations. But what about, you know, smaller brands, um, SMEs? Uh, what, what, what kind of influence could they have and, and how would they go about exercising that power i'll give i'll give you an example right so my wife is a fashion designer fashion manufacturer and they're doing a lot in terms of sustainability what where they're sourcing their their lycra etc for 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 swimwear and and all the rest uh largely from you know recycled plastics ocean waste etc um and um they're doing a lot of work in in packaging and you know producing locally with you know with factories that actually meet Australian labor standards etc so there's a good sustainability story there but there are sometimes challenges working with suppliers um, around the world and kind of going well you know we're you know a business of this size how do we how do we influence those suppliers those factories um those producers to to come on the journey with you or is it just a matter of switching whole scale to only working with b corps look i think we've everybody's got to do what they can do in their business and 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 you know if it's achievable then i think it's more likely to happen so and you know there's lots of different profiles of businesses from large scale down to small and i think a couple of really important things to think about here are you know for example we import so many plastic pellets it's just ridiculous. We could actually produce and be an exporter, a world exporter, with the amount of plastic that we've got going through. So there's an opportunity immediately for anyone in that manufacturing space to be trying to replace. Uh, don't import it. Look for some Australian solutions. And that that that's a really important theme, especially with COVID happening. We've seen some broken supply chains and the geopolitics is changing some of those supply chains. So looking locally is a really important piece of this. You know, what can I do locally? Um, Yes, my business might be national, but what can I be doing locally to reduce transport costs, packaging costs and all these different things? Um, And I'm thinking of companies like BVN who've got some phenomenal, you know, BVN's an architectural firm. They branched out because they were very passionate about the circular economy and designed a new form of venting system for, for the built environment. And what they do is they use recycled plastic. They have a 3D printing machine that can be taken to a construction site 
Um, and instead of using steel, and you know those big heavy steel vents that, you know, sort of push out air, you know, in one spot through a grid, they've created this plastic that they can print out of their machine on site, two specs. Um, it's biomimicry, so it breathes. It's got holes all through it, so the air flows, um, you know, consistent. And they've come up with this fantastic new solution that was actually, it's not their core business to be doing that, but they've created this because it was a problem to be solved. And as a sustainable company focusing on sustainability, you know, they looked at the venting system, which the design has stayed the same for centuries and the amount of steel it uses. So huge carbon savings, huge environmental benefits from that and transport costs. And they've come up with a solution that takes their product into a into a site and they produce it on site without those transport costs. So I think ingenuity, thinking out of the box is really important. Ultimately, we can only do what we can do, um, you know, and giving it a go is very important. And I would encourage people, particularly small businesses or medium-sized businesses to be looking locally. Once you go on this journey and, and my colleagues you know, research colleagues talk about this all the time. I'm thinking of Niall Blair from Charles Sturt University, the former minister, Honourable Niall Blair, was saying just the other day that once your eyes are open to this, you start to see lots of opportunities. And and then also you're going to be investing and supporting in those solutions and with it will come local jobs and cost savings will come. Yeah, amazing. I mean, what what are the most heartening stories that, where you've either seen a you know a large behemoth, um, big incumbent multinational making strides, or uh, or a small to medium sized enterprise really you know finding opportunity and and turning them into benefits to people, planet, and ultimately profits as well. Well, look, I've given some examples already with you know your Phillips, you know with your washing machines, and BVN's another example, although they're still in incubation phase, but. There's so many fantastic examples. We actually have uh, have sponsored the Circle Awards, which I'd encourage you and your listeners to have a look at. Um, the Circle Awards has got these fantastic new businesses. A lot of them are disruptive, smaller scale businesses with solutions that are circular. I think about shared mobility. It's a really, really big part of the, sh- the circular economy. If you think that a car um, costs about $8,000 a year to own and run, um, to have a shared mobility as a service or a membership. And if you're using it quite a lot, you probably pay around two grand. You're looking at six grand savings already for the year. It might be for your second car or could replace a car that you're planning to buy, especially if you've got public transport near you. So shared mobility is a big example and you've got your go-get and your car next door and those types of solutions that are really important. And um you know, we have examples. I've, I've given you some examples in the hospital sector. There's lots of examples um, where companies are really being brave in terms of changing um, their packaging and the packaging covenant. Apco's another example of some really phenomenal design of for products, and some of them are really simple, Anders. They're not complicated. So, you know how we get the little bit of tomato sauce, for example. We get it with our pies and squirt it out yeah why can't we just use the tomato sauce at the shop and if you want the tomato sauce they'll put some in there those tiny plastic things just need to get out of our economy so some things no matter how carefully we design them we actually need to refuse them they need to be designed out of our economy altogether that's some examples around that I mean, the, and and that I think that point's really interesting because I, I have met a little bit of resistance at times when people kind of go, oh yeah, green, you know, sustainability. Sure, we've got a pandemic now. People have got more important things to think about. Uh, it's been the contrary in my experience, and certainly the data shows that the consumer has become more conscious through the pandemic, not uh, not less conscious. But there was a moment when everyone was like, oh, Anders clean is the new green you know we're wearing disposable masks we're throwing alcohol on our hands all of the time you know people are are not able to sit down for a coffee in a cafe so you know the um, we can't we can't compromise safety that's a really important piece in all of this and i think that there's so many other ways in which we can still be sustainable like you know we just have to make sure that the things we're making 
these components out of can go back into the economy over and over again. And we've got the systems to recycle those things that we can't design out at the moment. And certainly safety is so important with COVID and we would never be suggesting that we compromise that. But, you know, it would be good if our masks and things could then go back into be recycled in a way or be, you know, used longer. And I'm sure that companies are starting to look at that. But just to finish off, think, you know, our discussion a second ago too about, you know, businesses, it is a big challenge too for a lot of these linear companies and they're faced with challenges that are, you know, will cause them to lose, you know, they're losing a lot of money already because they know that their products are carbon intensive, for example, or they know that the products they're producing won't have a future and they've got to start rethinking. And so there's a really important piece here around innovation and how we bring research together with these businesses to solve their problems. And I think in waste management, there's companies that um, I know of that have, you know, just, you know, a decade and a half ago would have had world leading um, solutions to deal with red bin garbage, for example, and now, you know, turning it into organics or other things. And now we're starting to see restrictions and regulations preventing uh, those solutions from moving forward because we know so much more about what's going into the red bin now. We know that there's mm. PFAS and really toxic things, PVC, that are in the bin that we're using in our homes that go in the red bin and then actually can't be mixed up to go back in the environment. So we need to know about this too. Like what are those things that are really toxic that we shouldn't have and we shouldn't be buying in the first place? And I kind of think it's a little bit like the 80s and 90s where we started to get awareness around nutrition and what was actually on the back of the pack. If you look at the back of the pack of products, it's really hard to know what those things are. And I think starting to get greater awareness and building more regulation around this and get build more understanding around this is just really important. Like, so we can, consumers can make more informed decisions and they know that PVC is actually toxic and there's alternatives for them that they can get. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about some of these business models as well, whether it's, you know, Loop from, from TerraCycle launched at the World Economic Forum. Uh, TerraCycle here in Australia is already active um, with uh, Gillette and they're going to be collaborating with Woolworths. But, you know, even even my razor blades now, uh, TerraCycle will take them back a little bit similarly to, you know, Nespresso pods that are now being recycled and taken back. I think we'll see that across all categories. Um, I mean, I'm finding it a little bit hard to, to, to stand and, and, and sharpen my razor blades. Um, I don't have the technology at home to do that. But, you know, I'm glad to see that companies like Gillette and um, Woolworths, Tesco's over in the UK are now starting to use, you know, very old school business models. There's almost sort of the milkman business model. Um and Loop in, in, in Europe, for example, you know, they're sending out like a tote bag and, and, you know, the containers can still be branded depending on your, you know, your favorite, favorite goods. But, you know, eventually they go back to, to, to the dark store or wherever it happens to be and get refilled. And again, you know, they just, it makes so much sense. And I think there's this anger amongst the consumers that there is just so much waste. I think of I, th I think of nappies now that we have a three week old at home, and while we buy organic and even the you know the plastic bags that we put those in are um, uh, biodynamic and will break down, I'm going where you know we're not we're supposedly not meant to put those into our compost, um, and so I'm like where does that go? <laughs> you know where you know someone's got to be be able to design a better system, and I know you know back in the day you know you sent your um, cotton nappies away to, to get cleaned by someone else, poor person, um, who had to clean all of those. But, you know, look, give, give me a solution here for, for, well, for the nappy problem. Well, there's G-diapers, actually. Well, it's not in Australia yet, but G-diapers is an Australian guy and his American partner who created this same thing. They had babies like you had, was sick of the waste. They were living in Portland and created G-diapers, which is now in France, it's in the States and a few other countries. It's not in Australia yet. But I think um, those solutions will start coming. And to your point, you know, even if it's sort of a rough and ready solution to get going, um, you know, I think that um, eventually these companies start to get more and more sophisticated. So then they're going to be thinking, right, well, 
um, how do we actually get more value out of these complaints? How can we create a proper collection to get back from the consumer what they've used because that's worth something to us and the, and we're not going to be able to produce these things for the same price because the you know our natural resources are getting so depleted now the cost is just going to start to increase so you know i think it's going to be an interesting observation to see how companies tackle this um and good on the companies for trying new things i think that's really important but there's no doubt that carbon emissions are really attached to this so it's not just enough to for us to cut carbon we've got to reduce waste mm. and they're very very connected there's carbon emissions in the manufacturing and the and the um, use and the disposal of those products anyway but how are we thinking about um, you know bringing that all together in a way that reduces transport costs too because transporting is obviously um, costly so that's where being your local community and this local element is quite powerful in circular economy and thinking about how that sort of decentralised piece plays out. And we're seeing that with recycled water even in utilities. You know, how do we enable people to get free energy from the sun, to recycle their water, to keep their organic waste locally, even not even if it's not in their own home, but locally to enhance biodiversity and soil quality and so forth? Mm. How do we reduce vehicle use to... Because, it's you know, we forget that cars actually uh, cause... Um, a lot of health problems in communities. I mean, we're mm. talking stroke, heart attacks, health issues caused by pollution, and 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 that affects our children too. Um, and I think in Sydney, for example, we were my son was in childcare before COVID, the years before COVID, and childcare would be closed every couple of months, and they wouldn't let the kids outside because the air quality was so poor. So we were starting to see that happen. Mm. We've had a bit of a reprieve with COVID. And we haven't seen those pollution levels spiking. Um, so I think that these are big, important issues for us to be discussing. It's just not enough to say, oh, well, cars are causing cancer and other things. That's fine. It's not fine. And that's why the transition to electric vehicles is just so important. And, you know, there's a lot of things we've got to think about here. And also with COP happening, you know, people probably hearing chatter about it, but it's also we are in a global world now. What we do in our backyard matters. Even if our government or even if our jurisdiction doesn't care about it, it does matter and it has global implications. So, you know, the world's moving really quickly towards measuring carbon and, you know, creating a carbon economy. So it's something that we've got to, we've really got to start thinking about with our own actions. Mm. And I think, you know, the notion of, of true cost, as you've alluded to before, you know, we're just not paying the true cost of, you know, the disposable straw, for example, or, you know, if we go down to the $2 shop without pointing finger at the $2 shop, you know, what's the true cost, you know, who, who had to sit through potentially, you know, um, really, you know, abusive, you know, labor relationships in a distant part of the world? Was there child labor that produced, you know, a toy for an Australian kid? Um, like the, these questions, while they sound, you know, super privileged, I mean, they're real, they're real concerns. And when we don't pay the true cost of something, you know, it's an unequal playing field. We're, we're going to be interviewing uh, John Elkington, the author of Green Swans, in a, in a few weeks' time on this show. And, I mean, he's very much of the opinion, and he draws the analogy to, to, to big tobacco um, and what's happening at the moment. And he says, you know, tobacco had to contend with this idea that you had to put, you know, the health implications on the pack, uh, together with, you know, now generic packaging, but also, you know, what, what are the long-term you know, external realities or externalities of smoking. And he says the same, the same should be true. If you're a manufacturer or if you're, a, you know, a, a food manufacturer, a food producer, and you're using certain types of, you know, fertilizers or have other negative externalities, you need to put that on the package. What, what, are, what are your Abs thoughts on that? Absolutely, Anders. I think that is such a good analogy. And imagine what it would look like. I mean, straws and you know, you think about the water pollution, what it's caught doing to our animals. So we've got, you know, extinction rates in Australia are higher than any other country in the world. Um, you know, poisons that we put out, 
don't just kill the rats that we want to kill. They kill the eagles and the other animals that feed off them or the owls. There's big implication, chemicals we use because we just happened to buy it. We didn't really know that it, we thought it was a weed killer that, uh, you know, that just can cause cancer but can also stays in the environment for a long time, killing bees and other really important parts of our biodiversity. So we need to have that awareness and responsibility. So there's a piece there around we've talked about product stewardship, but, you know, it's so important for each of us to, to take on these questions. And if you don't know, put it out to you in your, in, on your socials and ask someone and pretty quickly someone will come back to you. I mean, I notice at the school the kids all need to get glasses for a Christmas event and someone's volunteered to go to the $2 shop to buy a whole lot of them. And, you know, that's great, but at the same time, the um, there's a bin up the road which just happened to have a whole lot of glasses in them that from the, a previous concert that just happened. So just it's just linking this together and it's not quite there as a market yet. So it's no one's fault. It's just that we have to start looking for further and deeper for what are those opportunities. And then organisations like New South Wales Cir- Circular are just getting really busy at trying to build those connections and those supply chains and one of the really interesting projects we're doing is this, our citizens' work. We have a citizens' task force that we'll be launching soon. And some of that work is around how we can create local community hubs for circular economy. And we're starting to see that. You may have some where you live nearby. Here we can go and we can take more than just batteries back and paint tins back. We can take back um, coat hangers and soft toys and textiles and other things. So, you know, building the network of people to come to those places how do you do it that's the secret magic right how do we get people to be going there or going to a uh, repair bar to get the toaster fixed or the jug fixed when they typically just chuck it and buy another one so you know I think there's some really interesting research that'll come out of there and some more um, models that we can start emulating on how to you know really connect with people and show them that pathway because it'll be just as quick or just as long as buying a new thing, you just got to find that pathway. Yeah. I mean, I think of that, about that in terms of what we, what we discard and maybe as, you know, a family grows, you know, you grow out of certain clothes, maybe it's, you know, uh, you know, a little, um, you know, baby toys or whatever it happens to be. I know Lego now, which is one of our clients, they're starting to to ensure that you can actually donate your Lego back and they give it to 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 to, to kids who might not be able to afford, you know, Lego toys, for example. And so there are all these, you know, wonderful circular recycling types of initiatives. We also thought about, because we moved house recently, we thought, okay, well, let's deck it out with a new couch. And then we thought, oh, actually, let's not do the new couch. Let's go up to Nicole's dad up in the Hunter Valley, who's got one in his shed uh, that Nicole grew up with uh, back in the early '80s. And you know, it's been it's been through um, it's been through a um, um, a massive um, uh, flood, and so it was not in good shape. Um, and um, by doing that, not only you know do we get a, a repair person who's really good and skilled, you know, an artisan, you know, an opportunity to to practice his skills in terms of you know refurbishing this this couch, but also using you know sustainable materials to put on it, and hopefully you know we've just given it another, another twenty or thirty years life instead of it ending up either being burnt or being put into to landfill, and you know one less couch had to be produced. I know that's very micro scale, but it's, it, it surprises me that not more people think in this way. And I think I think this is the point around neighborhoods, and, and I want to come back to this. We've talked a lot about business today, but I'm curious in terms of your Open Cities initiative, et cetera, you know, what's happening on a New South Wales basis, regional basis, smart cities basis that, that you find really inspiring at the moment, or what do we need to do more of? Yeah, look, I think it's a, I think it's so important and that, you know, I was talking about our little program before, which is, is going to be really exciting to get going. But how do we actually, we might build, council might build these facilities, so repair or create space for repair and reuse um, businesses and they might create a place where you can take back stuff as well, drop off place. But how do we actually get out there and tell people about it? And I think, you know, Gumtree, Facebook have got very interesting opportunities here to get really involved. And Facebook, you know, has had a surge in its marketplace. I don't know if you how much how often you use it, but it is phenomenal. And I think I used it quite a lot through COVID, um, and um, and 
obviously before then and lots of people have and it's just great you get to meet local people particularly during lockdown because you couldn't travel a certain distance so it was particularly appealing for people in your really close neighborhood and it's astounding how many people are just there waiting looking for that right thing so marketplaces like that are going to be more and more important and I think that you know councils do have a big role to play here with some services and leadership you know showing people uh, what's possible creating making space available and space has been a very costly and difficult piece pre-COVID and ironically now you know commercial space is very available and very affordable and you know councils and governments are really looking to utilize those spaces because you know we're working from home more um, traveling less and what people have seen since COVID is that actually they're even more productive when their team's working from home largely. In some cases, that's not always right. And I'm not suggesting that, uh, you know, we're always going to all work from home, but certainly we've seen a big surge in the percentage of staffers working from home now. So office space is different. Uh, people are wanting boardrooms instead of, um, instead of uh, you know, desks. So as people are working more from home, you know, that's the, the flip side of it. They're in their local community and they're going to be needing more things than they did need before. They might have got their shoes fixed. They might have got or bought new things in the city or wherever their place of work is. So it's been a very interesting journey to be working with councils as they sort of adapt to those changing needs of people within their community. And I think also people are more aware of their natural environment and way more appreciative of their natural environment um, because they're looking for um, reprieve from, um, you know, working in their house all day if they're remote. Um, and so this connection between waste and biodiversity is really big. I mean, around here, you know, people were walking along different waterways you know we've been picking up waste out of that waterways for years and years we always pick it up as we go and now there's a whole movement of people picking up that waste because there's so many more people have the time to go at lunchtime down because they're working from home to do that so we people are really connecting with their communities and potentially seeing that negative impact um, of waste streams both water and water in the waterways and also in land so I think it's all connected and I do think that um it's got to be both demand driven and it has to also be that councils are providing new services and they're allowing space for new businesses to be working here. And that can be hard because councils might have arrangements with big waste man, um, management companies to get rid of all the waste. And actually there's lots of value to break it up. So there's a lot of complexities here that they're working through. Yeah. You, you talked about, COP and COP26, which, you know, as we record this, is sort of in full motion or coming towards the end. What's your sort of analysis of what's happened? Any any new stories that we should be paying attention to? What's, what's been uh, inspiring or, or disappointing about the, the meeting in Glasgow? Look, from our perspective, um, there's a piece around circular economy and those embedded and hidden emissions because there's been so much talk about uh, renewable energy and the energy transition, which is absolutely critical, and obviously the, the, the transport transition to EVs. It's got to happen, um, and the market is going to make this happen regardless of um you know, recalcitrant governments. Uh, the market's there. We've got a lot of leadership here in New South Wales. And I think that the framework, the federal framework around product stewardship is really exciting and inspiring as a result of China Sword. So I feel like the framework is coming together. And I think that there is no um, moving away from the future. You know, you talked about the future. We're constantly in transition. And um, as we move constantly in transition we're moving further and further away from carbon intensive economies um, and the circular economy is actually a really exciting positive narrative for all governments to get behind it's great for consumers because it means we can finally buy things that we don't have to chuck away and they might last longer and we might we'll probably get them cheaper too there's opportunities as i talked about shared mobility even recycled water getting energy from the sun there's lots of opportunities to have downward pressure on costs for people 
And for businesses, there's an opportunity to make more money, which is great. And for board, in boardrooms, circular economy is a way in which they can tackle way more carbon emissions than they thought they could because they'd already sorted out their energy and transport. Well, suddenly there's a whole new chapter here for them to dive in to cut carbon. And it's also a way in which they can get competitive advantage by designing new products. So big opportunities, I think, around there. And I do believe circular economy has got a very special role to play in Australia, especially with a very um, intensive, carbon intensive economy. Um, and, you know, the different political landscape, I do think that circular economy is a narrative that um, could go really far um, out of Canberra by looking at these additional carbon emissions we can cut through recycling. And it's also about innovation, um, how we can catalyse new solutions. So it's always interesting whether, you know, Scott Morrison is holding up a lump of coal or an iPhone upside down in interviews, but um, as he did recently. Um, and he says, you know, technology will solve all of this. And, you know, it's almost sounding like back to Malcolm Turnbull's innovation nation and, you know, the jobs of the future. People get a little bit kind of going, how's technology going to shift all of this? I mean, I, I'm, I'm a tech utopian to, to a degree, but like, what, what would you like to say there? Yeah, what, what, what types of technologies and, you know, how will they ex- help us exactly? They're not- The technologies are just not going to appear. We need proper frameworks and targets. We can never get anywhere if we if we don't have a target or or a compass. So the first thing that has to happen, and this is how it happened when we started the zero carbon transition, we need to be able to measure it, we need to be able to set targets to it, and then we all need to work together to exceed those targets. So we absolutely need a plan and a detailed plan around that. Technology is important, but it's not going to cut it at the moment because we have very sophisticated markets um, that are, as I mentioned before, that promote, our regulators promote and support linear business models that have been in place for the business models are 75 to 100 years old. We've got lots of innovation happening, but they can't scale because they can't compete against the um, current market structures and these particularly a lot of monopoly type providers that we have in different markets. So there needs to be market reform. Um, I think that um, the approach that's happening in New South Wales is very inspiring around this and other states where they're starting to map out those bespoke opportunities. Also, I like the fact that states are working together because we can't they can't do it on their own. The cost of the infrastructure transition um, means that one state alone can't necessarily make that step. So I'm talking particularly around circular economy. Like what's that infrastructure we need to, whether it's to create um, um, you know, recycle batteries to extract lithium or what other things we're going to be doing. How do we actually um, afford to build that kit and infrastructure? And it's something that we've got to share right across the state. So I think that um, it's all great to say innovation and I'm we're a huge supporter of that at New South Wales Circular. We are funded by the Office of Chief Scientist and Engineer. But what makes our platform really unique is that we're a collaborative platform. We need industry in there and we also need researchers and we also need government. It cannot happen on its own. We've got to move forward with those things together. Cool. I'm curious, where can people find out more? If people want to engage with, with Lisa and Circular New South Wales, New South Wales Circular, and, um, you know, truly make their businesses, their communities, their their home lives more sustainable, where, where yep. do people tune in with, with well, your work? And check and- out our website. Um, we'd love to have you visit us. Um, we know that we are partners with Planet Arc and around Australia there's a few organisations working in this space. I'd encourage everybody to look at the Circle Awards. They had their first inaugural event this year but there's some fantastic businesses in there and products that you could access straight away. Um, And also just go on your own journey. You need to start exploring and say, what is this circular economy? How can I get be part of it? How can I get what I need and get rid of what I've got in a sustainable way that's going to add value? Uh, So go on your journey and then you can report back to us and tell us how you went. Yeah, fantastic. And my sense is that the climate clock is very much ticking and that talking about 2050 or like the Chinese and India, 2070, 2080, is far too far into the future. I believe that we've got... 2030, Anders, that's mm. what we're focusing yeah. on for the future for our kids yeah. and the next those generations. 
yeah, great minds think alike sometime and, 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 and certainly um, divergence and, and diversity has also been shown to drive innovation output as well. So um, make sure that you've all got devil's advocates on your teams and, uh, and that you're able to listen in to, to people like Lisa McLean and her team uh, doing some really great work. My final question to you is, um, so you live in Sydney, as do I. Um, where should Sydney be looking uh, towards uh, other cities around the world, smart cities, in terms of uh, getting its uh, piece of the puzzle right? Look, I think um, Sydney's huge. And so if you're breaking it down into local communities, the councils, as I mentioned, have got a big role to play. And we've got a program at the moment which is benchmarking for councils starting to measure their circular economy contribution. And we've called it My Circular because the idea is that it can be made public on those councils' websites so that people can go in and have a look at how much is being recycled and where what areas are being recycled. So... I think as that program rolls out across Sydney, it's going to be really exciting. I think people will start to get a much better understanding of what those recycling, not just what their recycling rates are, but, you know, what's that framework? What are the places that they can go to to take stuff back to? How can they plug into that? And what's the area that they've, you know, the opportunities that they might be able to leverage? So, yeah, benchmarking is really important. Back to my point about you can't make progress unless you measure it. You can't get there unless you set the targets. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much for featuring on the uh, Second Renaissance and um, for your stewardship on these really, really important questions, Lisa. It was an absolute pleasure, Anders. So thank you so much. Thanks, Lisa, for switching us from a linear model of thinking to an exponential yet circular mode of thought. Next, we speak with high-octane entrepreneur Creel Price from Investable on how the three Ps of planet, people, and profit coexist and augment each other, why entrepreneurs have a crucial role to play in fixing the climate crisis, green tech, and what the role of regenerative capitalism is in the economic recovery from the pandemic. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the Second Renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.